listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Hello listeners and welcome to episode 7 of Footprints on Our Hearts. I've got a bit of a longer intro today as there are quite a few things I want to mention. Um, There's been a lot going on in the world and in the UK over the past week so I will touch on that later. But today's interview is with Sophie Martin. If you're on Instagram then you may know Sophie as the infertile midwife and in this interview we talk a lot about infertility as well as about her twin sons, Cecil and Wilfred, and her experience of grief, both grief from losing her babies and also grief associated with infertility. And I'm really grateful to Sophie for talking to me about this and for putting up with what she probably thought were stupid questions about IVF and the process of that, because that is not something I've experienced myself. Um, And I know because I follow quite a lot of infertility warriors on Instagram um, that it's a really difficult and traumatic thing to go through in itself, quite setting aside the, you know, the, the kind of potential baby loss element from that and people who have been through both experiences. So if you are like me and you don't know that much about IVF, infertility, what the process involves, what you have to go through, then I hope this interview will leave you a bit better informed and more aware. And yeah, big shout out to all the infertility warriors who listen to the show. Sophie's also a midwife, and I just realized that I've had two interviews with midwives um, in two weeks. That wasn't deliberate. It's just how the scheduling and things um, happened out. But her story is very different from Steph's. And I think, yeah, I think they're both great stories, but in different ways. Um, and talking about grief, I just wanted to, to mention something this week. I mentioned it on, on my Instagram feed about grief hitting you at unexpected moments. And I think we've probably all felt this where you kind of think you're doing okay and life's kind of ticking on as normal. And then something just out of the blue, like a tidal wave just kind of knocks you over and and knocks you flat. And I think for me, one thing I've realized is it often tends to happen on holidays or when I'm taking like a long weekend away or a break, which it's really frustrating because that's the kind of time you want to be happy and enjoy yourself. And I think maybe it's because a lot of the time when I'm at home, my brain's occupied with work and life and business and all those kind of things you do. And perhaps that kind of grief and I guess thinking about sky and about other things to do with that kind of sometimes gets pushed a bit to a back corner of my mind. And then when I go on holiday or I'm away and I'm kind of relaxing and forgetting about work, my mind's then empty and then all those thoughts and feelings and emotions kind of come flooding back. I don't know if that's just me, um, but I would love to hear if you've had any occasions when grief has hit you unexpectedly 
or if that's something that you often feel on holidays too, or maybe it's just me being unable to relax and a workaholic, I don't know. (laughs) Okay, um, the next thing I wanted to mention is back in episode three, if you listen to the podcast then, I interviewed Philippa Davis about her play Dancing in the Wings, which is based on the story of her daughter, Sam, who was stillborn. Now, Dancing in the Wings has had its first productions. It's had amazing reviews um, in theatres across North Wales. And the final run of the play is next Friday. And that's the 20th of March, if you're not listening to this um, at the time it goes out. And that's being shown in the Forum Theatre in Chester, which is in Cheshire. And there are still tickets available for the show. And I think Philippa has some free tickets available for student midwives who want to attend. Um, And I feel it's, well, I've got my tickets. I'm really looking forward to going. Um, I think it will be quite a difficult play to watch emotionally. But I also feel that it's, something that's really important to support and to help Philippa raise awareness of baby loss and stillbirth and the impact it has on individuals and couples. Um, So hopefully I will maybe be able to see some of you there. If you're going, do let me know and we can bump elbows or whatever it is we're supposed to be doing in um, with coronavirus now in terms, instead of hugging and kissing and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and if you do live in the area and you haven't got your tickets yet, please do check it out. I will put the links in the show notes. So on to coronavirus. Can't really have an intro without a mention of it, right? Um, yeah, things have been going a little bit crazy over the last few weeks. And I have a bit of a geeky interest in this because I used to work in emergency planning and actually did quite a lot of work during the swine flu outbreak, which is just over a decade ago now, um, in terms of planning and the response to that. So yeah, so I've been keeping a bit of an eye on this. And I think the main thing I wanted to mention in terms of, I guess, this podcast and how it relates to you is for anyone who might be pregnant, which particularly if you're pregnant with a rainbow baby, you suffered a loss, is um, anxious enough as it is really without a pandemic virus kind of going around and causing you worry. So the good news is that there has been some official advice for pregnant women and for midwifery units, which has been issued now on coronavirus. And also from the evidence so far, it doesn't look to be as harmful or dangerous for pregnant women and unborn babies as the flu virus or swine flu was. Um, Obviously, I am not a medical expert and there is limited data which they're going off in terms of you know, what they can base these decisions on. Um, and, the, the you know, the general advice applies to anyone in terms of hand washing, isolating yourself if you have symptoms, etc. cetera. Um, and I think, well, if you are pregnant and um, worried about this, then my heart goes out to you. Um, I think it is a really worrying time and we don't want anything extra added on top of existing anxieties. Um, but equally, I think we have to be sensible and, you know, listen to the medical advice, listen to the scientific advice and follow that guidance. And finally, just before we get onto the podcast, I wanted to give a shout out to another podcast 
this week, which is the Finally Pregnant podcast, which is hosted by Kat Strawbridge. And this is a podcast which is specifically focused on pregnancy after infertility or loss. Um, And I wanted to mention it because we do talk about pregnancy after loss in some episodes on this podcast, but Footprints on Our Hearts will always be first and foremost a podcast about baby loss. And I'm very aware that pregnancy is something that many of you will not want to listen to and will find it you know, too hard to listen to for whatever reason, which is why I try to make sure that we don't cover it in every episode and that we have a range of guests and topics covered. But if you are currently pregnant with your rainbow and want to listen to more women talking about their experiences after preg- of pregnancy after loss, then you can check out the Finally Pregnant podcast. And I will include the link to that again in the show notes and to where you can find Kat online. Right. That felt like a bit of a, a bit of a mouthful. Um, but that's it for the intro this week. Just a reminder that if you're listening, I would appreciate any reviews or ratings to help other people find the podcast. And please do share the podcast and spread the word with your friends on social media, wherever you like to hang out virtually or in reality. So I hope you all have a great weekend and enjoy the interview with Sophie. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Sophie Martin, who's known on Instagram as the infertile midwife. Welcome to the podcast, Sophie. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. We've got lots to talk about today, but I wanted to start by going back to the beginning of your journey to become a mum. When did you decide you wanted to start a family and when did infertility first rear its ugly head? I think, well, me and my husband always wanted children and we wanted to kind of do the traditional thing of get married first. But um, I was actually training to be a midwife whilst we got married. So I wanted to qualify as a midwife before we started trying for a baby. So we started trying in 2018, towards the end of 2018. Um, No, we didn't. It was a year before that. Goodness me. All the years blur into one. We did IVF in 2018. We started in 2017, um, at the end of 2017, and then started IVF in 2018. And so did was that because you just tried to get pregnant naturally and it wasn't happening? Or was there, did you have a particular medical reason that you knew you might need a bit of, you know, that it wasn't going to work for you? Yeah, um, so we tried for forever um <laughs> feels like forever right <laughs> yeah we've been trying for a while nothing was happening and then I did know that I had low AMH which is anti-malarian hormone um which indicates your ovarian reserve so it wasn't really a surprise when we didn't get pregnant okay so does that sorry for my non-medical knowledge does that basically mean you've got fewer eggs in your ovaries oh it's a tricky one so (laughs) amh ultimately just tells you how successful you will be with ivf but for some reason a lot of people with low amh can't get pregnant naturally even though a lot of people with low amh will get pregnant naturally so it is a bit of a confusing one but essentially yeah in a really basic term it means you've got less eggs Okay. And we're in the UK. And one thing I do know is that the provision of sort of fertility treatment on the NHS is varies considerably across the country in terms of, I guess, what you're entitled to what you have to do. Did you go down the sort of NHS route? Or did you 
go through privately for, for this first round? Yeah, so we st- we went to like the GP and got a referral um, to a gynaecologist and he said, oh, you need a laparoscopy. There's a nine-month waiting list. And then he went, oh, and there's a nine-month waiting list for follow-up afterwards. So that was 18 months before I'd even get referred to the fertility clinic. And I'm very impatient. So we just went privately after that. Um, and actually, I found out I wasn't eligible for NHS treatment anyway because my AMH was so low. So I'm really glad I didn't wait for that 18 months and then be told no. Oh, gosh. So that so is that because they... I don't know, under NHS criteria, you weren't likely to be successful enough or something? I guess it, yeah, I guess so. I think that, I mean, obviously funding is really, really tricky. You know, there's loads of criteria, age, BMI, all those sorts of things. So they, um, it was actually FSH, but my FSH was also too high as well. So that's follicle stimulating hormone. Um, so we, yeah, we cut our losses and went privately, which I'm really glad that we did. Yeah, yeah, particularly when there's that weight. I mean, the NHS is great for many things, particularly, you know, when you're bleeding and in dire need of help. But yeah, there are waiting lists for what it considers to be non-urgent medical care. Um, So I'm going to hold up my hands and admit, I've been lucky enough not to have to go through IVF treatment. And I'll be honest, it's something that, I don't know, there's always had this bit of a kind of cloud or air of mystery around it. And I'm sure that many people who haven't been through it or had a close friend or family member go through it aren't really actually sure what it entails and that was one reason why I really wanted to talk to you so I could get a better understanding of this and hopefully some of the listeners who haven't been through it could also um, get a better understanding. So did you know much about IVF what it involved before you started treatment? And from a midwifery perspective I did know a fair amount but definitely not enough before I started I mean I researched it when I knew we were going to start but prior to that yeah I knew that there was lots of injections involved and then you would have a baby afterwards so I was quite naive to what IVF was before we started. Yeah and and I I do because I don't think it is really talked about unless you you know you're going through it and then you're you know you find your community in that circle of people so could you perhaps talk us through what it actually involves I guess from that first appointment at the clinic to you know going through the whole process because it's not just getting a little embryo and popping it in your womb is it it's a if lot only. more <laughs> if only <laughs> um so I mean when you first go to a fertility clinic they'll do all their investigations and whatnot and then they'll decide a treatment plan for you um and usually that involves stimulating your hormones so trying to get your ovaries to produce lots of follicles that will take around 10 to 12 days roughly Um, and then after they've grown to a certain size you do what's called a trigger shot um, and that matures those follicles and then 36 hours later they'll be collected so you'll be sedated and um, I don't know how graphic you want to go but basically go for um, it (laughs) um, we talk about birth and death and everything on this podcast (laughs) well so um, for the egg collection they have a really long kind of needle aspirations they put that into your vagina and suck all the eggs out essentially um from the follicles and then they'll be taken away to the embryologist and fertilized after your partner has done his part of the deal (laughs) yeah his his part sounds a lot easier than your part (laughs) i don't know the pressure that's quite a lot of pressure (laughs) time to perform guys yeah (laughs) 
Oh, so okay, so the okay, so they you've got the eggs and things, and then the embryos go away to be fertilized. What or what happens? What happens then? What's the next step? Um, so the embryologist will phone you the next day to see how many fertilize, um, and then usually you try and wait until five days later, and then if they're still growing, you'll have one or two put back inside you that's kind of like a really whistle stop tour of IVF obviously there's lots of scans and injections and other things going on as well but that's kind of an overview yeah so are the injections then to stimulate that's the stimulating of the follicles but is that when you have to do the injections yeah yeah that's the injections part yeah and I oh I hate needles so the, the thought of you know having to do that fills me with horror but I I guess it's just one of those things you just have to get on with and you're a midwife so you're probably a little bit more comfortable with needles than perhaps your average person I love mixing the drugs that is one of my favorite <laughs> things to do like I that is the midwife in me I love mixing it all up and then preparing it so they're not like pre-prepared syringes you have to kind of do everything yourself no some will come pre-prepared and then others come as a powder and then a solvent and you mix it together draw it up and then inject yourself oh gosh is there any chance of getting it wrong? Like what happens if, I don't know, I'd be terrified about doing the wrong amount of something. You do have a, they do a teaching session with you before you start and go through it all, but it's really regimented. So they're telling you exactly what you need to do every day and then reviewing the medication usually every other day. So you're, you're very kind of under strict instructions of what to do. Okay. And is it just one injection a day or... It depends what protocols. Depends on the um, okay. So I would, it's it's often two a day, depending on what part of the treatment plan you're in. But yeah, it could be one or two a day. Gosh, that's a lot to go through even before you get to the kind of embryo stage. So I guess so. I guess the, they fertilize quite quickly, so you don't have a huge wait to find out what's happened then. And that's either I guess a thumbs up or a thumbs down in terms of if they fertilized or not. Yeah, um, sometimes they'll give them a bit longer. But yeah, usually it's a yes or a no. Um, and then so so you've been through it, you've got hopefully got a fertilized embryo. And then how what what happens next? I guess they stick it inside you. Yeah, so five days after the egg collection and the fertilization, you'll go back in with a very full bladder. Um, and you're awake for this bit. And it's just a, a catheter, so like a long tube, and then they just pop it in the right place. And that's it. And then you wait. And then you wait for your, your two-week wait. Well, mine was only a nine-day wait, but other clinics do two weeks. Gosh. And is that – so So is that basically what, after two weeks, you then do take a pregnancy, a pregnancy test. test to see? Okay. Do, do you not want to cheat and do it earlier? Or is it – I is play it not by the rules. I, I, I always do what I'm told, so I could not test early. But I do know a lot of people do do it early. But, no, I'm – I – I can't stray from the rule book. <laughs> that might be a good thing because I can imagine you get through a lot of pregnancy tests otherwise while well, you're kind of... They're expensive. Waiting for that. Yeah, yeah, they're not cheap. <laughs> um, so you went through your first round of IVF, which I think was successful. So you had the positive pregnancy test. How did it feel seeing that um, that line, that positive line on the pregnancy test? So that was the first positive pregnancy test I ever had. And, and only actually um, and I think we're in a state of shock 
I mean, being told to do a pregnancy test on a specific day definitely takes some of the magic away. And I've been awake from probably about two in the morning and I held my wee, because obviously you have to use the first urine. I'd held it until 5am and I couldn't hold it any longer. So I wake up James, my husband, and said, oh, I have to do it now. So went and peed on the stick and then just left it in the bathroom and got it back into bed and put a three minute timer on my phone so that we could go and check it and then after three minutes yeah we went in and obviously it was positive and then we went back to bed (laughs) (laughs) did you sleep though yeah I did it was such a relief I don't think I was that I don't think I was that excited I think I was more relieved really yeah obviously we were happy yeah, and when did you find out that you were having twins? So we'd only had one embryo put back in, and we so we weren't expecting to have twins at all. I was just smiling to myself because the week that we found out we were pregnant, I made myself eggs in the morning and I got a double yolka. Um, <laughs> the sign. <laughs> I had that twice in the same week, and then we found out we were having twins. It was it was amazing, but. Um, We found out we're having twins because I had a little bit of bleeding and I I was so panicking over nothing really. But I phoned the early pregnancy unit where I work and said, can I come in for a checkup? And we got there and you get undressed because it's an internal scan at this gestation. And the sonographer's scanning me and the screen is facing the other way and she's saying oh asking about the IVF or when did we have it transferred back and how many embryos did we have and we said one and so she's kind of looking around and I thought oh she's just being really really thorough she went oh is there definitely only one embryo put back and we were like yeah and she turned the screen round and there was two little blobs in there so yeah it was amazing and how did you how did you feel about that I was in a state of shock and I do distinctly remember thinking, oh, things like that don't happen to me. Um, And also thinking, oh, now I have twice as much to worry about. So we left the the early pregnancy unit and I was actually at work. I was a community midwife at the time. So I was doing my visits and one of my visits was near the hospital. So I did my last visit. Off I went to the scan had the scan then I had to go back on to my visits so it was kind of like I didn't have time to process it but I do remember I phoned my mum as we came out of the scan and I think she nearly crashed the car she was so shocked yeah because I think I mean it it, it must be a bit of a a mixed feeling I guess because obviously there's the excitement and you know the knowledge that that they're okay and they're there and they're doing all right but you know twins it is a bit daunting I think at, at any time um in terms of sort of having twins I know when we when I had Sky and we had our first um scan then and my husband has twins in his family so <laughs> going into the scan going I really really hope the baby's okay but I really secretly hope it's not twins um yeah we were very very shocked and the reason that we'd only had one embryo put back was well I only had one embryo but we were very sure beforehand that we didn't want to put back because we weren't ready for twins mm-hmm. but you deal with what nature gives you I guess and how many weeks were you how many weeks pregnant were you at that point I, I we found out super early there was twins so I was five weeks and five days when we found out it was twins okay and how did your pregnancy go I had hideous morning sickness oh my goodness I found it so difficult so those first 
12 weeks I bled quite a lot so we did do a lot of trips to the early pregnancy unit but all the time it was fine and um, but the morning sickness was unbelievable and I'm a midwife so I see people with morning sickness all the time and I thought why has no one ever told me how bad this is it was absolutely horrendous I used well, I used to drag myself out of bed and then with a plastic bag sit on the train um because I just was feeling so awful and I only took one day off work as well which was really stupid I just made myself go to work every day I don't know why I did that well I mean that's that's pretty amazing and I have heard that it is often worse when you have twins so perhaps that was that was part of it I hope it's never that bad again but it went on for such a long time as well it went on for nearly 18 weeks I was still being sick Gosh, yeah, must have felt that was that was must have been a long eighteen weeks, and I guess the the bleeding must have been quite sort of anxiety provoking as well. Even if you know you go in and you get told it's fine, it's still I don't know. I, th- I think it, it's one of those things that perhaps you know triggers some anxious thoughts. I was incredibly anxious the whole pregnancy. I just could not accept that anything good was going to happen I think from the infertility point of view just everything going wrong all the time no part of my brain thought that everything would be okay I was just I didn't buy a single thing I didn't want to talk about it I was kind of shut I just really found the pregnancy incredibly difficult and I think what made it worse was because I'm a midwife I felt I should know all the answers and I also felt too embarrassed to ask my colleagues because I felt I should have known, which is just so stupid because you can't be your own midwife. That's why someone else has got to be your midwife. So I yeah, never told anyone that I was really anxious. And I, yeah, as I said, I went to work every day, even though I was feeling absolutely rotten and I was being sick all the time. Yeah. So I, I definitely struggled. So if anyone else is struggling, please, please just ask for help. I would, i actually regret not asking for help I really got myself into a bit of a state during the pregnancy even if you are a midwife or a nurse or a doctor or whatever and think that you know you should know your stuff as you say it's a completely different thing when you're you know you're the the person who it's actually happening to Um, and did you and your husband decide on the twins names quite early on we actually didn't know the gender we were having so we knew they were identical so we knew it'd either be two boys or two girls but no we we didn't find out the gender so we hadn't chosen the name we had kind of a few names bobbing around but no we named them after they were born Mm -hmm. so let's fast forward a bit then to April last year and you'd gone through your 20-week scan and presumably everything looked okay at that what happened next Actually, um, it wasn't okay at the 20-week scan. Um, We found out that even though they were identical, Cecil um, had talipes. So that is, he only had it in one foot. So that's where the bones of the foot um, haven't formed properly. So they're bent kind of inwards, I guess. Um, So, I mean, it's not a problem. They just have to wear a little foot brace afterwards. But I, we came out of that scan and I said to my husband, this is the start of everything going wrong. And he just thought I was being pessimistic, which I probably was at that point. And um, so we had kind of that shock of Cecil having talipes and we were kind of laughing and saying, well, we have to tell them apart now and this sort of thing. And then that was 
I can't remember what day that was, but at the end of that week, it was Mother's Day and we went out for lunch and I remember thinking, oh, this time next year, I'm going to have two babies. And that was the first day that I'd ever thought I'm going to have two babies. Before that, I'd kind of thought, oh, maybe or oh, if everything's okay. But on that day, I thought, no, I'm going to have two babies by Mother's Day next year. And then a few days later, I started bleeding again and I'd had quite a big gap without any bleeding. So it was a bit of a shock and um, so we went to the hospital and they checked me over and everything was okay so we went home again and then the next day I had just a routine midwife checkup anyway so we went and I was still bleeding but kind of everything was okay so we went home again and then on the third day I really didn't feel very well at all I just felt really strange and so I said to James we have to go back to the hospital I don't think some, something's not right here so we went back again for the third day in a row and they said, oh, yeah, we need to keep you in. Your cervix is changing. So I stayed in overnight and I was what I now know I was contracting, but I just didn't realise that I was having contractions. And um, and then that the next evening, my waters broke and I just went into labour after that. So it was quite quick. And I guess as this was around, I think around 21 weeks, and I guess as a midwife, you must have known what that meant in terms of the babies and their prospects. Yeah, so the whole time that I was in there having contractions, I just thought, oh, it's all going to stop and I'll go home. Um, Or I thought, oh, my waters might break and I'll have a trickle, but then I'll just be on bed rest for a while and everything will be okay. I really can't believe that those thoughts were going through my head because if I was the midwife, brain I would not be thinking that but the pregnant Sophie brain was like oh it's, it'll be fine I'll just have to be on the antenatal ward I'll be an inpatient for a few months but and I know they're going to come early and it will all be fine and the moment that my waters broke it was a massive gush I just knew that that was the end that they you know my babies were going to die that that the pregnancy was going to be over and that must have been incredibly hard to take in either from the midwife perspective or the pregnant Sophie perspective well I was my contractions were just so kind of strong and regular by that point Mm. I didn't really have time to think about it I just knew it clearly in labor yeah yeah yeah. it it was it was as soon as the waters broke I was like oh they had been contractions and now they're very strong and and so they just whizzed me around to labor ward and phoned my husband because he was at work my mum was with me at the time and I just didn't have time to think about anything else I just had to cope with the contractions which in a way was a relief actually because I didn't have to think about it I think if I'd had to think about it I would have freaked out probably yeah you just go into this is what has to happen mode you know survival mode um and I guess you know pushing a couple of twins out is not straightforward or easy how how did it go for you I was actually really really proud of the labor that's probably the only thing that I was proud of because I felt I did a really good job I knew that they were both breech and I did feel like it was very unfair that I was going to have to give birth twice in a very short space of time but I delivered them myself and so I was the first person to hold them and I just was really proud of how that went Um, and I just had gas and air and I felt like if they'd lived that would have been a birth that everyone would want to hear about but obviously no one wants to hear about your birth when the twins have died 
but um yeah but I think you can still be proud of that though and I think you still you know you're still a mother you've still been through that process of giving birth and everyone has a different birth story to tell so you know you can be proud of yours I mean it was a really lovely birth my um what's it oh my mum and my husband were there and they were so supportive and I had a really lovely midwife there as well so I was really pleased with the birth and um and the boys were were born alive so they survived the initial birth um did you get to spend much time with them before they passed away and did you know how long you would get I actually was shocked that they were born alive to be honest because in my head I knew they were going to die I joined up the dots and thought that they were already dead. Um, so when they came out alive, we were all so shocked. Um, and also because they're so young in their gestation as well. And um, so we, James held Cecil whilst I was giving birth to Wilfred. And then they both stayed together until they died. And then we stayed in the hospital because I wasn't very well for a few days. And they were with us as well. I think you said you were a community midwife. So was this the hospital you were kind of associated with or was it a different hospital that you were in? Did you know the people who were around you? Yeah, so I was a community midwife at the time. I'm not anymore. I work in the hospital now. But yeah, it's the hospital that I've worked at for eight years. So I knew all my colleagues. So it was a hard, it must have been so hard for them. I really feel for those midwives that had to look after me. Yeah, and... I guess so. So one of the things I found was that I, even though I kind of done my research, I didn't know what to expect in terms of it. It sounds really stupid, but but what I was supposed to do after giving birth and in terms of, um, you know, making memories or what they offered in terms of bereavement suite and, and things like that. And I guess as a midwife, you must you had maybe had some experience of that or knew, I guess, how things worked so did you feel that helped you at all in terms of deciding how you wanted to spend what time you had with your boys yeah I knew obviously everything that would be available to us I I was actually quite glad that so I was quite I was a bit unwell and I had to be on antibiotics for a few days and I was actually quite glad to stay in the hospital because then it meant that we would get to see them and be with them as much as possible but I did ask for a charity called remember my baby I asked for them to come and take photos of the boys because I love their work I think they're a fantastic charity and so my colleagues arranged for them to come they actually don't usually come unless the baby's born more than 24 weeks and so I was really thankful that they came to see us and but yeah I guess I knew we were already in the bereavement suite I've been in that room before it was all very familiar to me so it was it was nice in a way to have everything so familiar I think that would have been quite difficult to be in a strange room that you're not used to Mm. and I yeah I only heard of remember my baby I think a few weeks or a few months ago um but I've seen some of their photographs and yeah it does it looks amazing and a really sort of special special way to remember the sort of short time you had together as a family um, so I'm glad you got that. I'm glad they came out for you. Yeah, they were amazing. Um, and thank you for sharing that that with us. Um, so after you'd been discharged from the hospital and, and you went home, how what were those initial weeks and months of grief like for you? So we left the hospital and my husband's parents drove us home and I was had not been very I'd been 
get on well and I immediately got up a ladder and started cleaning the blinds because I just had this overwhelming desire to completely bleach our entire flat um, and I couldn't do nothing so I had to do something so I defrosted the freezer, I scrubbed the flat, I mean it's never been so clean, it, it was never so clean as it was those first few weeks and um, I think I was just very numb those first the first few weeks it's almost it feels like maybe it hasn't happened it was it was really obviously very hard and I didn't I didn't want to leave the house I found it quite difficult to leave the house for a few or a few months actually um actually if it wasn't for my little dog crumpet I probably would never have left the house um and we had a lot of visitors so my family came every day or nearly every day which I'm so thankful for actually being by myself was also incredibly difficult too yeah it's a very painful time and did you find that you and your husband grieved differently sort of during this time and I guess later on or were you you know were you in the sort of similar line I think it was different because I had had to go through obviously giving birth and then all the physicalities and obviously that doesn't happen for the husband or the partner and so I think it's very difficult for him because for me there was this big physical shift from being noticeably pregnant to then nothing whereas actually James looked exactly the same so people didn't necessarily know that there was something wrong with him whereas it was more obvious for me and I think we were I think we were a good team I think we allowed each other to grieve and we would comfort each other but it, I mean, it's difficult. I sometimes forget that they're not just my babies. I think I I have to sometimes remind myself that they're actually James's children too, and actually he can grieve them in his own way. Uh, yeah, I think it's quite difficult. I think also because because um, Sky, our daughter, she was born at twenty six weeks, so again, much earlier than towards the end of the pregnancy, and I think my husband hadn't like I still think he hadn't quite got his head around the idea that we were going to have a baby and that he was going to be a dad whereas obviously when you're pregnant you can feel them and with you you know you had all these horrendous um morning sickness and other symptoms and things so you really I guess I guess you you know you have that bond and it's very real and and present for you in a way that yeah it's it's perhaps different for for the partners in the relationship yeah I mean you're with you have that such intense relationship because they're with you every second of every day I thought about them every single second of every day and I know James thought about them a lot but I just it's not the same but that's not to say one is better than the other it's just a different relationship isn't it and how did you feel about going back to work and being surrounded by pregnant women and other people's babies after you know being through that and having to watch Cecil and Wilfred die I chose to go back to work really quickly so because obviously they were born before 24 weeks I wasn't entitled to any maternity leave um even though they were born alive I thought yes uh, well no no so you are entitled to maternity leave if they're born alive um I don't know it's really difficult. The midwives, um, there was a mistake and I didn't get the maternity leave basically, which is an ongoing issue. 
so I didn't have any official maternity leave and I went back to work seven weeks after I gave birth oh my goodness I actually still had a retained placenta when I went back to work as well I was just so desperate not to be living in this kind of grief bubble so I couldn't I didn't want to be at home any longer and I would have I wanted to go back to work and but I was going back to a new area so I was actually going back to the antenatal clinic of the hospital which actually was the best place and that's where still where I work now and so no babies just pregnant women Mm -hmm. and did you find that work was a helpful distraction then yeah I mean my colleagues are absolutely incredible and we I couldn't do it without them but I love my job so it's it's even though it is difficult on some days I love being at work Um, and yeah it's it is a really nice distraction. And did you find out what had caused you to go into premature labour? At the time of the birth, they thought I had an infection, but I didn't. And it turned out that I had incompetent cervix. Which is the worst named condition or whatever. <laughs> I actually I feel it's very world. accurate because is it? that cervix was damn incompetent. Like it let me down when I really needed it. So <laughs> I... Cervix. Yeah, like I'm not a fan of my cervix. So I know a lot of people would find that offensive, but I feel like it hit the nail on the head. It did not do the job it was supposed to do. Fair enough. And what options were you given then in terms of future pregnancies? Um, I was offered surveillance and then a suture during the pregnancy, but I felt like that wasn't enough. So I contacted a doctor who actually happens to work at my hospital um, and he did an abdominal cerclage. So that's a stitch in your cervix pre-pregnancy and it's done through your abdomen. So it's very high on the cervix and it's permanent. So it means I can only give birth now via cesarean section. But it's basically tying, tying your cervix up so nothing can fall out. Exactly. Okay. And does, does that reassure you? I guess it must do to some extent at least it does to some extent but I think I I'm always going to have those fears that it will happen again but I mean there is nothing better than this suture so if this doesn't work nothing is going to work and when did you feel ready to start thinking about having another baby and having to go back through another round of IVF I would have started IVF within a few weeks of giving birth if I had been allowed to because I just felt this absolute desperation to be pregnant again even though I didn't enjoy being pregnant I felt I needed to be pregnant straight away so that has not happened so I had a retained placenta for 11 weeks so that was nearly three months without we couldn't try for a baby then I had to have this suture put in so we could didn't actually start IVF again until November and in hindsight even that was probably a bit too early to do it I think I needed more time to grieve but I just was so desperate to get on that roller coaster of IVF again that I threw myself back in as soon as I could and I think that is quite common because I think you do have all these kind of hormones and things which are saying you know you should be pregnant or you should have have a baby and I do I know that it it is quite common for women to kind of choose to, you know, whether they're going through having to go through fertility treatment or conceiving naturally to 
to want that process to start as soon as possible and not to replace the child they've lost, but just to to feel that emptiness, I guess, and that some of that sort of sense of loss. Yeah, at work, there was a statistic the other day and it was 60% of the bereaved parents at my hospital will rebook, so will be pregnant again within a year of giving birth. So that's an awful lot and also very quickly also made me feel incredibly rubbish because I'm not going to be that person to rebook within a year but it it I just felt like wow people must just be and I feel that so desperate to be pregnant again Mm. and did that make you feel differently about your second round of IVF as you were going through that I felt with our first round of IVF I know that this is the success rates aren't great so I felt like oh well if this one doesn't work it doesn't matter we'll just do it again and again and again with the second I felt a lot more pressure I felt that there was external pressure I feel like everyone wants me to have another baby because then they'll think I'll be fixed in some way which is absolutely not true so I felt a lot of pressure from everyone else I felt like everyone's looking at me waiting for me to have another baby and I guess I was just way less positive because I didn't really want to be pregnant at the end of it. I I know that's a weird contradiction, having said I was desperate to do IVF, but I still am quite terrified of being pregnant again. So my heart probably wasn't in it. And I think that second round wasn't successful. I mean, it was a car crash. So when we go, if we reverse back to the IVF process, I did all the stimulation, got to the egg collection, only had one egg collected. That is not very good for anyone that doesn't know about IVF. And that one egg didn't fertilise. So we didn't even get to the transfer. It was absolutely horrendous. And that must have been incredibly soul destroying. And I imagine with when you go through these IVF cycles, obviously, I don't know from experience, but there must be a process of grief in there as well. And you must have had that, perhaps that grief from that, you know, that one egg which didn't fertilise on top of what you were already feeling after Cecil and Wilfred had died. I think the whole of infertility is grief. You're grieving for that natural conception. You're grieving because you might never have a child. And so, yeah, absolutely, every failed round is is grief. You're You're grieving that dream that you had that you would have 2.4 children and everything would be lovely and I would say that the grief of the round obviously wasn't anywhere near as bad and I didn't have to face a negative pregnancy test in a way because we didn't get to transfer so it it was hard but I was expecting I think when you're so used to everything going wrong I feel like the last three or four years have just been a catalogue of not very nice things happening that it was no surprise to me that the IVF failed. Yeah, and I, I can see that. And I I think I feel like I am naturally a kind of glass half empty person. So I have to kind of force myself to be positive a lot of the time. And it must be really, really hard to try and remain positive when you're going through this process again and again and you've got all these odds stacked against you for anyone who's going through through IVF. Um, and I've seen the term IVF warrior. And I think that is, yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. It's kind of a, it must be a, I guess, a daily, a monthly, I guess, physical and mental battle that you're going through with yourself. It's just a roller coaster of emotions. And it is so difficult to try and be positive all the time. I probably am not even a glass half empty. I think the glass is fully empty a lot of the time. <laughs> it's got a few drops in. and. 
I have to just really hope that those drops will add up and eventually I will have the whole glass. That's, I don't know if that was a terrible analogy. I don't know. But um, I like it. <laughs> we'll, we'll roll with it. Um, it's It just is overwhelming. It takes over your whole life. I'd say I'm absolutely 100% obsessed with infertility and having a baby. I It's every thought, if not every other thought, honestly, I, it's all I think about. Mm-hmm. And I think you've decided to go for a third round, but you decided to try a different clinic. Could you perhaps talk through... Um, why you decided to switch and how you went about finding the right clinic for you. Yeah, so we actually signed up to do the third, fourth and fifth round. Um, we're doing okay. something called embryo. Ahead. Yeah, we're <laughs> doing something called embryo banking. So we're trying to get as many embryos as we can in the hope of not just one pregnancy, but siblings potentially. Um, so we, after our failed round, we went back to our clinic for a follow-up and they just kind of shrugged and went, oh, that's a shame. And I just felt that wasn't good enough. My first two children have died. My second round of IVF has failed. I don't want, oh, that's a shame. And so we wanted to know what they were going to suggest next. And it took them about a month and a half to even decide on a protocol. And in the end, it was doing the same thing we'd already done. Now, I think there's a quote that's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Um, And we just felt that they didn't want to help us in the same way. I think our case wasn't so straightforward anymore and we're bad for statistics. So we just weren't getting a good feeling. So we decided to have a little shop around um, and I did an incredible amount of research. I feel like I know everything about the doctor that I've chosen. Um, We actually even went to Greece to have a look at doing IVF there, but we then chose a clinic actually in London because we out of all the people we saw only one person asked the names of the twins and not only that but he obviously was an incredible doctor and had lots of suggestions but it was that personal touch it was like looking at the whole story you know we're not just I'm not just some eggs waiting to be stimulated you know we've got a history so that just really made the difference for us. Yeah, he made the effort to not just kind of look through your file, but remember their names and the circumstances and and what had happened. Um, And yeah, treat them as the the babies and the children they were, not just, I guess, a failed pregnancy or or whatever. Yeah, it was, in a way, it was really empowering to go and choose a new clinic. But it also, for my own practice as a midwife, just made me realise how important it is just to not look at the symptoms or the problem it it is about the whole package people aren't just isolated pieces they're a whole so what does embryo banking involve so it's doing it's trying to collect as many embryos so across three rounds so you do the stimulation and the egg collection and the fertilization but you don't do the transfer so you do that three times and then after that you see how many you've got if you've got any hopefully and then you do the transfer after that okay and do they then freeze they can freeze embryos right so you can then use them again or use them in future yeah so each round after each collection and fertilization if they're good enough they'll be frozen then we'll start the the next one do the same again freeze them and then the third one and freeze them and then after that we'll have a break and then Mm -hmm. do a transfer and 
Yeah, and I saw a post, and just to touch on what you you mentioned just a few minutes ago, um, and I think you posted the other day about the fact that this almost gave you a bit of time to breathe without worrying about being pregnant for a while. Could you talk a bit about, I guess, that battle between fear and hope? Because obviously, I guess on the one hand, you desperately want to be pregnant. And on the other hand, you're terrified of being pregnant. And how and that, you know, like anything, that must be a real mental battle that's going on in your head and must be really exhausting. So could you perhaps talk about, I guess, the, the mental aspect of I, I guess this particular situation, but also just generally going through infertility. I think oh, I've already said this a few times. So when you're so used to everything going wrong, that when you do get that positive pregnancy test, it's not that happy, joyous moment that everyone thinks about. So it's just the start of another chapter of a different sort of anxiety and different worries. So I definitely feel this a lot but I try and break it down. So at the moment, I'm just focusing on the IVF because I can't waste energy focusing on being scared of being pregnant quite yet because that's not my daily reality, whereas I've got this huge mountain of the IVF to climb first. But it, I would say it's just ticking away all the time, those fears. And I think anyone who's lost had baby loss, I, I don't understand how you could possibly go into another pregnancy without having a level of anxiety, you know, when you've had to say goodbye to your your baby. That yeah, I think there's definitely, there. yeah, there's always a time, there's, there's that before loss and after loss. And, you know, you can never have that, I guess, that naive, innocent, you know, pregnant innocency when you can just relax and enjoy it and believe that everything's going to be okay. I think... It's maybe trying to find joy in a different way. But I would say people who've had infertility don't even get that part. So you don't even get that joyous, oh, everything's lovely. That is already taken away from you. So then it's a double whammy, I think, when you've had infertility and baby loss because nothing is safe. There is no happy, safe part. Yeah, there's no guarantee of conception there's no guarantee of how long that that baby will be with you for um if it does if it does take and that must be yeah that must be really hard well I I mean I know it's not much but I wish you all the luck in the world with round three I hope I hope that it is third time lucky um and that this is the the time you get to bring home a living child Um, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and talking with me about um, Cecil and Wilfred um, just before we wrap up would you like to tell people where they can connect with you online sure so you can find me on Instagram which is at the infertile midwife so it's the dot infertile dot midwife fantastic and I will put a link to that in the show notes thank you so much for coming on the podcast Sophie thank you very much thank you for listening to this episode of footprints on our hearts Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>